Our scripture passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, it is so good to be in the presence of your people, singing your praise together. All kinds of different backgrounds and circumstances and people and all kinds of different experiences this week, yet we come in here and we come together and we have this common confession that we believe Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, heaven is your throne and earth is your footstool. Holy is your name. You're exalted in the heavens and you're exalted among these saints. There is none like you, majestic in holiness, abundantly overflowing in grace and mercy and love. May you answer us in the day of trouble. May we shout for joy over your salvation. In your name, we set up our banners. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But may we be a people who trust in the name of the Lord our God. Father, we pray for our new president, President Biden and Vice President Harris. And God, we ask that you would radically save them. Bring them to you. Grant faith, grant repentance, grant wisdom. God, we ask that you would restrain evil during their administration. We ask that you would move them to lead with virtue. God, we ask for you to place people of faith in their influence. 
a Joseph in Pharaoh's palace, an Esther in Xerxes' palace, a Daniel in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. And God, if things continue to go south in this nation, may we fear you much and fear men little. Help us to be strong. Help us by your spirit. And this morning now, as we turn to your word, would you please make your word like honey to our lips? We pray it in the strong and beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, good morning. Really good to see you. I see a lot of new faces. I want to say welcome. Glad you're here. And if I would have you know one thing about Southside Baptist Church, it's one of our core values. We've got seven of them. But one of them is that we are ruled by God's word. And that word ruled is really strong and it's there on purpose. We want to submit to God's word in everything we do. And one of the main ways you'll see that is on Sunday mornings. On Sunday mornings, we just open up this book and whatever's there is where we're headed. And so we're in the gospel of Matthew now. You can go ahead and turn to chapter 3. And whatever's here in Matthew is what we're going to have on Sunday. And next week, it'll be Matthew 4. And then the next week, a little bit more Matthew 4. And the next week, Matthew 5. And then a couple weeks in Matthew 5. And that's what we're going to do. God sets his agenda for his church through his word. And also, I want to say one welcome back to our college students Always glad to see you after the college break. Uh, I'm so encouraged by our college students and how committed you are to the local church. And maybe you're a college student here and you're still visiting. Let me tell you what I wish someone had told me when I was your age, what, 18 years ago? Uh, you've got a lot of awesome opportunities uh, here in Abilene and tons of opportunities, tons of awesome parachurch ministries and lots of things that are going to pull at you while you're here. And let me just encourage you, make sure you prioritize that which is most important. And that which is most important is the local church. Lots of good opportunities, but Jesus Christ did not shed his blood for parachurch ministries. Jesus Christ shed his blood for the local church. And so let me encourage you to find a place, plug in, join it, use your gifts. You need us and we need you. All right, think with me about a police motorcade making its way through the city. You can see the blue and the red from far off and first come the motorcycles and then come the black SUVs and the cars with flags and people and traffic begins to clear out of the way. Everybody knows what's going on. The king's been gone and here he is. He's back at last. Now take that scene and throw it back about 2,000 years to the dusty deserts. The king's been gone a long time, but at last he's coming back. But how? How will he return? Well, he'll return exactly as he said he would return. That's what Matthew's going to show us this morning. So let's look at Matthew chapter 3, at who was John the Baptist, what did John the Baptist come to do, and then let's look at the baptism of Jesus. So first, who was John? John the Baptist actually was a really significant dude. All the Gospels start with him and for good reason. Do you remember how the Old Testament ended? God had been silent for 400 years. God had not spoken to his people between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But do you remember how it ended? If you've got your Bible open to Matthew, just flip back, just a couple pages. Last book is the book of Malachi. Malachi, the Italian prophet. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Notice how this 
Old Testament ends. Matthew, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, God says. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he's coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Now flip over a page to the very last verses, chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, the Lord says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. So notice how it ends. God's saying, I'm going to return to my people, but before I return to my people, I'm going to send a messenger. And in fact, that messenger is going to be Elijah. Well, John the Baptist is that Elijah to come. In fact, look back at Matthew chapter 3, verse 4. Who is John? Notice how it describes him here. John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. After four centuries of silence, here he is. Here is John. Here is this end time Elijah. Just listen to the way Elijah was described in 2 Kings 1. They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. So Matthew is showing us here, John is Elijah. In fact, Jesus will be even more clear than that. Keep your finger there in Matthew 3, but skip over to Matthew 17. Notice how Jesus describes this messenger. Matthew chapter 17, verse 10. The disciples asked Jesus, well, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they please. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is Elijah to come. He's this end time messenger. Look at Matthew chapter 3 verse 3. He's the messenger that goes ahead before God himself returns to his people. I'm really just having y'all flip back and forth so I can hear the sounds of the Bible pages. It's like music to my ears. Matthew 3 verse 3. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, and he quotes Isaiah 40, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So Matthew's quoting Isaiah 40. And remember Isaiah 40 and following, we talked about this last week. It's all about this new exodus. God's going to come back and he's going to make a way and he's going to defeat his enemies and he's going to be enthroned as king. But first he says, I'm going to send a messenger. Matthew is saying, once again, John is that messenger. John is rolling out the red carpet. Prepare the way. Make 
the path straight. John is really like the last of the Hebrew prophets. He's the next to last man. He's the forerunner. forerunner. He's the one who's going to point beyond himself to someone greater. That's what he says, right, in verse 11. Matthew 3 says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me, he's mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. See, the Baptist prepares the way. He clears the way, and then he gets out of the way. I really resonate with this ministry. I feel like that's my job. I want to get out of the way and point the way to the true king and get out of the way. You remember Ed McMahon? Kind of show your age if you remember Ed McMahon. (laughs) He really got famous for two words, didn't he? Here's Johnny. That's all he did. Ed wasn't drawing attention to himself. Neither is John. John the Baptist is not here to draw attention to himself. He's here to point to the main events. And notice, both Malachi, the prophet Malachi, and the prophet Isaiah predict that this messenger would come and prepare the way for God himself to come. Malachi and Isaiah, they're not talking about the Messiah coming. Malachi and Isaiah are saying, I'm going to come back. There's a messenger. And then God himself is going to come. And here it is, Matthew saying, God himself has come. In the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is God incarnate in the flesh. That's what we celebrate every year at Christmas. He alone is the Savior King. There's none like him. And he can be yours. I wonder, do you know this God man? Who's John? John's Elijah, the messenger sent ahead to make a way for the return of the Lord to restore his people. That's who he is. What did he come to do? Really three things. He came to preach, baptize, and warn. First, he came to preach, and he came to preach repentance. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He came to preach. See, preaching's always been crucial for the way God works. It's looked down upon nowadays. People say, well, no one has an appetite for preaching. People's, you know, their attention spans only 10 minutes because of social media and all that. It's looked down. But listen, preaching is one of the main means through which the God of heaven works. And that's because fundamentally Christianity is a religion of the word of God. This is what the spirit himself promises to work through. Bonhoeffer once said, for the sake of the proclaimed word, the world exists with all of its words. He says in the sermon, the foundation for a new world is laid. And so John comes and he's preaching and he's telling the truth. He wasn't really worried about pleasing people, but telling the truth so much so that we'll see in Matthew chapter 14 in the year 2027, that his head will end up on a platter for speaking truth to power. We really won't be in Matthew till 2027. Pick up on that later. That's what we need more of today, don't we? Truth tellers when it comes to God's word. And what's the first word of that proclaimed message? The first word is repent. Repent. Now that word too, it's mocked all the time today. Maybe you yourself, you hear that word repent and you think of some straggle-haired crazy person, some judgmental person on the side of the road with some makeshift sign screaming. But listen, 
Repentance is actually a beautiful word. It's actually a word that leads to flourishing in life here and now and eternal life beyond the grave. So what is it? What is repentance? What is this first word? What's John trying to tell us? Repentance, the the key idea, the key word is change. But it's a complete and lasting change of mind, heart, and life. It's a change of mind toward God, toward oneself, toward others. It's dropping our agenda. We're no longer central. It's taking on his agenda. Self is evicted from the center of your life and King Jesus and all that that entails in his ways is enthroned instead. Repentance is doing a 180. It's turning from sin to the Lord. Turning away from sin to Jesus Christ. It's not just being sorry. Sometimes I think that's what repentance is communicated is. Well, I'm just sorry. No, that's not what it is. That's worldly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7 would tell us. Repentance is being sorry enough to quit. It leads to a changed life. But true repentance, we're going to see in Matthew again and again, is not just about outward behavior. Remember the Pharisees? They were squeaky clean on the outside. They had the external stuff down really well. And Jesus says, you know what you are? You're like whitewashed tombs. You know, your headstone's really clean and you look good on the outside. But once you start looking at what's on the inside, what's there? Rotting bones. It's a corpse down below. And so what we're going to see is God wants all of us. God wants our external conformity, but even more than that, he wants our heart. See, a person who just goes to church on Sundays, they do a few things here and, here and there on the external, but their life's no different the rest of the week, and they don't have any love for the Lord, that kind of person is actually a stench in the nostrils of God. Repentance is a whole life, reorientation, inward, outward, head, hands, mind, will, heart. It's the whole person turning back to God and being fully devoted to him. Here's how one scholar summarizes John's message. He says, within, one must change one's mind and heart about what's important in life. And then change one's outward life accordingly. Repentance is an all of life change. That guy goes on to say one way to describe what repentance is, is a radical recognition of God. That word radical means at the root, right? Radix. At the roots, a recognition of who he is, which when we get that, friends, it changes everything. Have you repented? And for the Christian, repentance is not just a one-time thing. Repentance is all of life. In fact, it's kind of counterintuitive. You know, you would think that as we grow in, in spirituality, grow in grace, grow as a Christian, you would think, well, that means we repent of sin less, but it's actually the opposite. Actually, the more we grow in grace, the more we ought to be repenting from sin, turning from it and turning to the Lord. All of us, Calvin says, have been given a race of repentance. We are to run the entirety of our lives. Repentance is not just how we start the Christian life. Repentance is the Christian life. 
Thus starts the first and fundamental message of Christianity. Repent, and again, sadly, all but lost today in American pulpits. Listen to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. What were his first words? What, were, what was the first message of King Jesus? Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There it is. And friends, we've got to get this. Repentance and faith go together always. Two sides of the same coin. To turn from sin is to turn to Christ in faith. Repentance and faith. Believe and repent. And, and both Jesus and John mention the kingdom in that first message don't they repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand the kingdom is a huge theme in the teaching ministry of Jesus as we'll see in fact it might be the main thing Matthew himself uses it 32 times this phrase kingdom of heaven it's the same idea as the kingdom of God oftentimes Jews wouldn't want to pronounce the name of God but it's the same reality the kingdom simply put is God's saving reign So when John and Jesus say that the kingdom is at hand, they're saying that God's promised rule, all that the prophets promised, is beginning now. Yes, God's been sovereign for all eternity. There's a sense which now he's grabbing hold of his world. He's taking control through, again, his son. There was this Jewish prayer that went like this, very common. Kaddish prayer went like this. May God let his kingship rule in your lifetime. And in your days, and in the whole lifetime of the house of Israel, speedily and soon. There was this anticipation, right? 400 years of silence. When will God come back and take over? Matthew's saying, now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Lord has come back. The Lord will defeat his enemies. The Lord will be enthroned as king. The kingdom of heaven is here. And Jesus brings it. And he brings it in his first coming. That's really important for us to get. King is not something that's only way far off in the future. It's already and not yet. It won't be fully consummated until he returns. But it's here now. It's what he says. It's at hand. This word for at hand, it's in the perfect tense, which means it's here. It's not a thing that we're waiting for. It's already present. It's no longer just on the way. Jesus is bringing it. The kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus says in Mark 1, and John says right here. And friends, the kingdom of heaven is not about where you go when you die. That's heaven. That's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about where we go when we die. He's talking about the rule of heaven coming down to earth now. Right? Isn't that what we're going to learn here in a little bit? Maybe some of you know the Lord's Prayer by heart. Hopefully you do. Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Here's how one commentator puts it. He says, the time of God's effective sovereignty has arrived. And now is the time for a decisive action in response. God has become king in Jesus and his people now are to put that rule into effect. And he's gonna teach us here in a few chapters in chapter 13, that it takes a very long time. He uses the imagery of a mustard seed, which starts the smallest of the seeds. But over time, over centuries, over millennia, it grows and it grows and it grows until it stands taller than all of the garden plants. 
So John is the Elijah to come, the forerunner to the return of God himself to establish his rule and his message is repent. He comes first to preach repentance. What else does he come to do? Second, he comes to baptize. Look at Matthew 3, verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him and they were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Here they are again at the Jordan. The people of God had been at the Jordan once before and they had crossed it and we see God's doing a new work. And when God does a new work, when revival begins to happen, notice what occurs. The confession of sin. When God's presence is near, people start confessing their sin. Remember, Christians are not those who don't sin. We just have a different posture towards it than our unbelieving friends. It's not that we're sinless. We just approach it differently. We hate it and we confess it. And we seek to kill it. The remedy of sin is not denying it, but confessing it. Listen to Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. This is one of the reasons we encourage what we call D groups here at Southside, groups of three to six, same gender groups, three to six men or three to six women who will get to know each other, will read the word together, will pray together, and will confess sin together. Part of it is we are, we are together to help each other follow the Lord, and part of that is helping each other kill sin. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So they're coming and they confess their sins and they're baptized. They're immersed in the river. Baptism, baptism is this, this drowning and cleansing event, death to the old man, life to the new. It's, it's a new exodus, right? It's a new parting of the waters, symbolizing going from slavery to freedom. So John comes to preach, John comes to baptize, and John comes to warn the people of God, warn unrepentant Israel. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God's able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hands, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Everyone would have been surprised here that God's coming not just to judge the nations, but to judge his own people. And wow, John's not trying to win friends and influence people here, is he? The seeker-sensitive church would not hire John the Baptist. He's not PC. He might hurt our numbers. 
might rock the boat. And it's the Jewish leadership that he's addressing. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, which if we knew our history, we'd realize those are actually groups that were at odd. Yes, they were part of the Jewish leadership, but they were opposed to one another. The Pharisees were these really serious-minded Jewish people, mostly lay people. They were trying to be super pure that God might return. They thought, if we can be holy enough, God will come. And the Sadducees, on the other hand, were there, they were more like your wealthy liberal Methodists. They didn't take the Bible very seriously. They, uh, they were your urban nobility. And so you can see at odds, Sadducees very comfortable where we are. Pharisees thinking this is terrible. We're in bondage. Someone has to be more holy and then God will come. They were real mechanical. And that's why they added to the law. That's why Jesus would bump into them again and again as we're going to see. So at odds yet united against the Jewish Messiah, the Jewish leadership at odds with another who will become united together against the Jewish leadership. Nothing unites like a common enemy. And John doesn't say, hey, guys, I'm glad you came. How about this? Every eye closed, every head bowed. I want to make this as easy as possible. For all of you know, he says, you bunch of snakes. He says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't presume. Don't rely on who you are, on your family line, on your ancestry and shockingly here the fact that they're an ancestor of Abraham it means nothing according to John and according to Jesus without repentance God can raise up rocks as children of Abraham means nothing if they don't turn from sin into the king in repentance flip over a couple pages to Matthew chapter 8 this is one of the surprises of the gospel that you're not automatically in because of where you come from. That's why Jesus gets in trouble. It's like he doesn't care where you come from. He doesn't care about backgrounds. He cares about faith and repentance. Look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 11. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. John warns, oh, unrepentant Israel, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Friends, no one goes to heaven based upon ancestry. No one is saved based upon their heritage. It doesn't matter how godly your meemaw was. You can be the son of Billy Graham himself. You personally must repent and believe. Kids, look up, look up at me real quick, children. You, you don't know how blessed you are to be here with your parents or your grandparents. You are extremely fortunate to be in the church today. But listen, your, the, the faith of your parents will not save you. You must believe. You must trust the Lord, kids. There's got to come a time in your life, children, where you say, you know what? The God of my mommy and the God of my daddy, that's my God. You have to come to a place where you see, I'm a sinner. 
I need Jesus. I'm in this thing not just because my parents dragged me, but I've decided to follow Jesus. If you've got questions about that, talk to your parents. I know there's nothing they would like to talk to you more about. The faith of our family is insufficient to take us to glory. We must own our faith and repent and believe. Do not trust in your ancestry. Do not trust in your heritage. Do not trust in any outward thing at all. Listen, this is a word for Abilene, Texas. There's so many people, the vast majority of people. I've been here three and a half years. I don't know that I've met one unbeliever yet. Everyone professes faith. Everyone's connected to some Christian thing, some church or something in some way. And here's the word John Baptist is going to say, listen, don't trust in that. There are people all across the city that have some vague connection to some church that are going to split hell wide open because they haven't repented and believed. They're trusting in some outward thing and rather than a heart commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't know him. In fact, here in just a couple chapters, Matthew 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that's what Jesus is going to say. There's these people that think they know the Lord. They've even done some things. They've done some ministry things. And they say, Lord, haven't we done this? And they call them, Lord, Lord. And you know what Jesus says? It's the scariest passage in the Bible. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And I'm going to say to them, Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you. Oh, Lord, may that not be the case in a single person under my hearing. Trust in the Lord. Do you know him? John says, don't look at your heritage. And John says his baptism is, actually points to a greater baptism. There's one coming. This imagery of the Holy Spirit and fire is purifying, just like we saw at the end of Malachi. This one who's going to come and he's going to reconstitute the people of God around himself, this clean remnant of the true people of God. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff. In fact, John says his winnowing fork, it's already in his hands. We, that imagery might be lost on us, but the idea is he would get the fork and you know, pull up the grain and on a windy day, you would, just, you would just toss it into the air. And the heavier grain would fall right back down to the threshing floor, but the chaff would be blown, blown away. That's how you would get rid of it and keep the good stuff. And the chaff is gathered and burned. But the grain is gathered and kept. John warns about coming judgments. Again, something a lot of churches don't like to talk about. But we must. We must. I read a lot during the week and I often read people who don't take the Bible as seriously as I do. And I was reading one. He's a mainline scholar. doesn't really believe in the authority of scripture, but he put it this way. Listen to what he said. I thought it was striking. He says that one fruit of skipping these types of passages, one fruit of skipping the judgment passages, which friends, they're on every other page of the Bible, is a dull gospel and dull churches. He warns unrepentant Israel. Third, let's consider the baptism of Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus... 
It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So first, Matthew gives us the reason John's hesitant, but... Jesus says it's to fulfill all righteousness. That's the reason Jesus came as our substitute. He came as our representative. And so he identifies with sinners in every way, including by undergoing baptism. And in good Baptist form, I just need to point out that Jesus came up out of the water. You know, they needed more than a fountain. This was a river he was in. In fact, there's a very famous uh, 15th century painting by Da Vinci and Verrocchio. And it's this, it's this portrait. It's a painting of this scene in the Bible, and it's got John the Baptist sprinkling Jesus in about an ankle-deep water. <laughs> That's not what the text says, though. He was immersed. In fact, this, this word we just transliterate, baptism is just straight from the Greek. That's what it sounds like, baptizo, and the word means to dip, to immerse, to dunk. That's what the word means. In fact, interesting note, the people, you know, we have in the church, we've got really three divisions or wings, however you want to describe it. You've got the Protestant church, which is us, coming out of the Protestant Reformation, Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. We're Protestants. Then you have, of course, the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church that split in the 11th century. Well, who knows Greek the best? The Eastern Church, right? The Greek Orthodox Church. So they know what the Greek word means here. So they immerse, they dip, they dunk yet they still baptize infants i want to show you it's uh, it's quite horrific <laughs> Hold up, watch mama. <laughs> this video is the best apologetic I have for the Baptist cause. <laughs> the word means to dip, to dunk, to immerse. So that's why we do what we do. They just have the object wrong. It's for believers. It's for those who have the ability to profess faith, I assure you, those infants were not desiring that, <laughs> that act. And listen, this is the pattern we see in the book of Acts. All throughout the book of Acts, what do we see? We see the preaching of the gospel, we see faith and repentance, and then we see baptism as a believer. And so I love, we love our Methodist friends and Lutheran friends and, and Presbyterian friends, but the Baptists have this one right. It is to be immersed after faith. By the way, if you're a believer and you haven't been baptized, we'd love to talk. It's the first step of obedience for a Christian. So maybe that's been delayed and we'd love to talk through it. It's not an easy issue, but an important issue. And notice after Jesus is baptized here in this passage, the heavens are rent. The heavens are no longer shut off. Access granted. Here comes the king. And here again, we see a fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah. In chapter 64, he had prayed, oh, would you rend the heavens and come down? Matthew chapter 3, prayer answered. 
God's returning to his people. The heavens open. As they used to sing, heaven came down and glory filled my soul. The heavens are open and the spirit descends in the form of a dove. Why a dove? You ever thought about that? Why not like an eagle? Warhawk. Even an owl, you know, the bird of wisdom. Well, I think it's actually more allusion to the Old Testament. Remember Genesis 1 and the first creation where the spirit of God's hovering over the waters? And then remember in Genesis 8, after God had judged the world and Noah's waiting on that new creation to emerge, that, that purified world to emerge, what does he send out to check to see if there's land yet? Since a dove, this is new creation theology. What's God's up to? He's up to something new, a new covenant we've seen, a new exodus, a new creation. He's doing a new work. So the dove comes down and everyone sees visible. And then we have this divine proclamation, a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Notice we have all three persons of the Trinity at work here. We've got Father, Son, and Spirit. We just sang it. I believe in God, our Father. I believe in Christ, the Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Our God is three and one. All together right here, the triune plan of redemption. God's at work. And what does he say? He shows us who he is as he shows us who he is all the time. There's a lot of ways we might think about God. He's the creator. He's the ruler. He's the sovereign. All true, no doubt. But first and foremost, God is a father. And he expresses his love for his son. This is the son whom I love. This is my beloved son. The father has deep affection for the son. Always has. And by always, I mean always. Listen to what Jesus prayed in John 17. For all eternity, you loved me before the foundation of the world. So in eternity past, we had father Son and Spirit in a dance of mutual love. And creation and now redemption is nothing but an overflow of divine love, triune love. He says, this is my beloved Son with whom I well please, which actually alludes to at least three Old Testament passages. The language is a little bit subtle, but it's clearly referring to one in Genesis Chapter 22, son whom you love, beloved son, where God tells Abraham to take Isaac, quote, your son, your only son whom you love to be sacrificed. And then Psalm 2, which Nathan read earlier, you are my son. Today I have become your father. So Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is this son of David, the king who will inherit the nation, Psalm 2. But it's also an allusion to Isaiah, yet again, chapter 42. Behold my servants, whom I uphold, my chosen. And the language alludes here to in whom my soul delights. The father delights in the son who is the servant of Isaiah, who's coming to bring the kingdom. Matthew wants us to see in every chapter, Jesus is the resolution to the story of Israel. He wants us to see that the Old Testament is screaming, he is it's, it's all about him. All of history was pointing to him. All the promises of God find their yes in him. How should we respond? Repent and believe. Trust him. And then orient 
every detail of your life around this servant king. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the kindness you have given us in your word. Really all of life's problems and really all of history and all of our purpose that we ultimately find is right here. And once again, we're thankful that you're a promise-making God and you're a promise-keeping God and you've made so many promises and you've kept them and you will keep them. Thank you for promising to send a messenger who would warn and then sending a messenger who would warn. And I pray that we would be those who follow you and we would not rely on anything external. We wouldn't rely on some decision we made when we were young or we wouldn't rely on even baptism or we wouldn't rely on the fact that we were raised in a Christian home or we wouldn't rely on the fact that we live in Abilene, Texas. Wouldn't rely on anything but the fact that we know you. We know ourselves as sinners and we know you as the all-sufficient Savior. God, if there's any in here that doubt that reality, grant them repentance and faith. May they turn from sin and turn to you. Would they have resolve to know you? For those of us who do, would you grant us daily repentance? Show us our sin. We want to follow you. We want to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And we know we're not there yet. So would you show us areas of our lives that we have not yet repented? Areas of our lives where the self is still enthroned as central. Give us grace to evict the self and enthrone the King of Kings. We pray it in his name. Amen.